Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. One chilly morning in February 1910, Otto and Paul Smiths paddled their small boat up a creek in Washington State. They carried bait, tackle, and fishing line, everything they'd need to land a good catch. But they weren't here for sport. They were fishing for bodies. After a couple hours on the boat, one of the men spotted a corpse in the water. The bloated body bobbed up and down in the waves, staying in place even as the current tried to push it downstream. When the men rode over to the remains, they found two bullet holes in the victim's head. As they tried to lift the corpse into the boat, they almost tipped their vessel into the murky depths. The dead man was incredibly heavy because an anchor was tied to him. Nevertheless, they finally got him into the boat then returned to the office. It was just another day's work in the port of missing men. From 1903 to 1910, over 40 men had turned up dead in these waters, and the authorities believed one person was responsible for them all. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the ghoul of Grays Harbor, an alleged serial killer who reportedly haunted the port of Aberdeen, Washington in the early 1900s. Today, we'll meet the many sailors and laborers who vanished during the ghoul's reign of terror. We'll follow the police as they try to determine who's responsible and as one accused man becomes a legend. Next time, we'll investigate the real ghoul of Gray's Harbor and determine who he was and if he truly existed at all. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Wishka River runs cool and clear through central Grays Harbor County in Washington State. In the small port town of Aberdeen, it converges with another river and continues out to the Pacific Ocean. That means objects caught in the Wishka's current are sometimes swept off, never to be seen again. So police often worked quickly when they tried to collect important evidence from the water. On the afternoon of May 5th, 1907, the authorities heard about a floating body. They rushed over right away, hoping to catch it before it washed out to sea. They delicately pulled the corpse ashore and examined it. The deceased was badly decomposed, but the coroner thought he may have died from drowning. They guessed he'd been in the water for weeks before anyone found him. It was difficult to determine his identity. He was male and roughly 45 years old, but that was about all they could tell. When someone drowns, their lungs fill with water and they sink to the bottom of the riverbed. There, crabs and fish feast on soft tissue like lips and eyes. This means, by the time the corpse is found, it may not have any identifiable features anymore. And even if the body escapes the buffet line of marine animals, the water will take its toll. As the skin absorbs liquid, it takes on a waxy texture, then turns green and black as it continues to deteriorate. But the police got lucky with this one because they knew about a local man who'd recently gone missing, J.B. Mears. He'd been in and out of trouble the last few years, and he had a murder conviction on his record. About six weeks prior, he'd stolen pocketfuls of cash from his work and spent it on booze and women down by the harbor. Then, he disappeared. The case seemed pretty open and shut. A local blue-collar worker swiped money from his employer, had a rowdy evening in Gray's Harbor, then slipped and fell into the water. It was a common enough tale in a town like this. The major shipping communities across the county were a common stop for those seeking a night out on the town. Sailors could drop by a saloon before going to a dance hall in the Red Light District where they could buy company for the night. And occasionally, they got into trouble. 
Many local saloons had trapdoors in the back room in case brawls got out of hand. Supposedly, these were used for trash disposal, providing easy access to the Wishka River. But if Mears had angered the wrong patron and gotten fatally injured in the ensuing fight, the bartenders may have quietly taken care of the problem. The solution seemed simple enough. So the authorities were alarmed when, just 24 hours later, another body was spotted in the river. Constable George Dean, who spent his days patrolling the port, wasn't as surprised. In recent weeks, he'd noticed an uptick in the number of deaths around Aberdeen. There were so many, locals had come up with a name for the wave of corpses, the floater fleet. Almost universally, the bodies that washed ashore were laborers from shipping vessels or the nearby timber mills. But they didn't seem like they died in accidents at sea or in the factories. The corpses typically had no money on them. If a sailor slipped and fell into the water, or if a lumber mill worker got caught in the machinery, he'd surely have his wallet in his pocket. More details roused Dean's suspicions. This victim fit the previously established pattern. He was a sailor in his early 20s who'd gone missing two weeks earlier. And some of his shipmates admitted they'd heard a loud splash the same night he disappeared. But nobody knew whether he slipped and fell, threw himself in, or if someone pushed him. So out of an abundance of caution, police swept Aberdeen in May 1907, clearing out so-called questionable characters. Soon after, Constable Dean encountered a gaggle of children chattering on the boardwalk. Excitedly, they told the officer they'd found a body. But unlike the rest of the floater fleet, this man's head was cratered in. He'd clearly been the victim of a violent attack. And for Dean, it confirmed his suspicions. They had a murderer on their hands. Up next... Dean hunts for the killer. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. Now back to the story. In the early 1900s, it seemed a killer prowled the notoriously perilous ports in Grays Harbor County. For years, sailors and other workmen regularly washed up on the shores— 
And in 1907, the police constable, George Dean, began to suspect foul play. His hunch was apparently confirmed when a new body washed ashore, a sailor with a crushed skull. As per typical police procedure, Dean brought the body to the undertakers for examination. The coroner would be able to determine the deceased's cause of death as well as its identity. But this task proved more difficult than it initially seemed. The corpse had a watch with the name Otto Kurtz inscribed on it, but otherwise he had no identifying marks. Luckily, Dean and the coroner had a secret weapon up their sleeve. Billy Gould. Billy knew just about every working-class man in the area. As the local agent for the Sailors' Union of the Pacific, he represented the union rank and file and helped staff ships. In short, he kept the harbor running. And the men who worked these oceans needed an advocate. Their working conditions were deplorable. Billy coordinated strikes when workers were mistreated or underpaid, and he fought to ensure safe working conditions. Many in the Union were European immigrants, and employers viewed them as disposable. But Billy Gould was a German immigrant himself, and he sympathized with these men. If nobody else would advocate for them, he would. Likewise, his men trusted him. Sailors often left their money with Billy for safekeeping. They knew it'd be there when they returned from sea. Because Billy knew just about every deckhand, local police frequently asked him to identify the corpses that washed up on the shore. And sure enough, this time, Billy paced circles around the corpse before telling the authorities he knew the man. However, he couldn't recall his name. He only knew this fellow and a friend had visited him a few weeks prior to pay union dues. The next morning, Billy had more information. He claimed he'd checked his logbooks and now knew the dead man was Otto Kurtz. This matched the name on the man's watch. But Dean still wanted more information, like where the man had been staying and what he was doing in Grays Harbor. Unfortunately, Billy didn't know much. He said the friend who'd accompanied Kurtz to the office had just left port and wasn't expected back for a long time. Dean couldn't tell if Billy was telling him the full story. A sailor's union agent wasn't in the business of befriending police. The cops often served the interests of bosses over workers. Either way, after Billy left, Dean remembered he'd actually met this Otto Kurtz a few weeks ago. The now-dead sailor had asked Dean where he could stay in town. So Dean went straight to the boarding house he'd recommended to Otto and spoke with the landlady. She said her tenant had recently vanished, but his name was Rudolf Alterman, not Otto Kurtz. She showed the constable a photo of Rudolf, and Dean recognized the man in the picture as Otto. Something strange was definitely going on. Dean knew he had to dig deeper, so he contacted a police chief in Otto's home country of Germany. A few weeks later, he received a letter back saying Otto Kurtz was a German watchmaker. The name on the watch of the deceased was just his signature. Furthermore, the German police chief claimed that a local sailor by the name of Rudolf Alterman had bought the watch before setting out. Dean still couldn't figure out why Billy claimed the man's name was Otto. It was possible he saw the watch during the identification process and guessed. 
but that's not what Billy had said. He claimed he recognized the man and had met him in person. One way or another, Billy wasn't being honest. So the constable went back to Billy with more questions, hoping to clear up the confusion. In a strained conversation, Dean gently asked about the floater fleet. But the union agent responded with frank realism. Grace Harbor was a dangerous port, and things were liable to go wrong when a bunch of drunken sailors got together. Dean avoided revealing Otto Kurtz's true identity, but he did get Billy to concede sailors often operated under pseudonyms as they moved from port to port. Sometimes they had different lovers in each city, and some were evading the law. The conversation ended there, but Dean wasn't over his suspicions. A year passed, and the body count continued to climb. Unfortunately, as a small-town constable, Dean had little power to conduct a real investigation. That is, until May 1909. That month, the Aberdeen mayor called the constable to his office with news. He wanted Dean to take over as chief of police. Moreover, the mayor had partnered with the most influential businessmen in town and convinced them to donate $10,000, With this funding, Dean could track down the killer, who would come to be known as the Ghoul of Grays Harbor. Right away, Dean hired two agents from a preeminent private investigation firm. The agents were well acquainted with labor leaders like Billy. More than once, their company had been hired to violently break up strikes. The two private detectives, Patty McHugh and Billy Montana, purchased the saloon below Billy's office. Right away, they found a trap door, not the usual one saloons typically used for garbage. A second one was hidden behind a cigar counter, out of sight except to the most attentive eyes. This was suspicious, but it didn't mean anything on its own. Montana and McHugh needed more intel from the regulars, so for months they posed as the tavern's proprietors, serving drinks and eventually befriending Billy. And one night in the summer of 1909, Billy relayed a peculiar story to a detective. Drunk, Billy recalled how he'd once rowed a trio of scab sailors out to Moon Island. This landmass only appeared at low tide when the waters receded enough for land to peek out over the waves. When they reached Moon Island, Billy left the scabs on the island and rowed away just as the tide was coming in. As he paddled back to shore, Billy heard the men screaming that they didn't know how to swim. Unrepentant, Billy left them there to drown. It was exactly what Patty was looking for. So he passed this story back to the chief of police to investigate. It didn't take Dean long to uncover local rumors of three scabs who disappeared after rowing offshore one evening. But other than Billy's gruesome story, the constable didn't have any hard evidence to connect them to the union man. It would take more than a barroom boast to put Billy away. So Patty and Montana kept working him, hoping at some point he'd confess to something they could pin on him. One night, he revealed how he'd wreaked havoc on a farmstead. Billy and some friends had killed the family's cows before assaulting the farmer's 17-year-old daughter. 
When Patty said he hadn't heard anything about that in the news, Billy just laughed and suggested the family was too scared to report it. Soon after, the police chief visited the farm. He knew the family. They were Polish immigrants and skittish about dealing with law enforcement. When he asked them about Billy's tale, they denied all the claims. But after continued questioning, the family eventually broke down and admitted it was all true. They described the men who attacked them, matching Billy and his friends exactly. Still, the family refused to press charges. They were too scared of Billy Ghoul. And they weren't the only ones. Throughout the summer of 1909, Dean heard from more people who Billy had scared into silence. Late one evening, A.W. Jacobson knocked on Dean's door. Known to his friends as Andy, he had something to share with the chief. Andy said he'd been good friends with Billy until Billy had recently killed Andy's beloved dog. The canine had never liked Billy, and earlier that week, the pet had snapped at the union agent. In response, Billy kicked the dog, had it killed, and dumped it under the union hall. Now, Andy wanted his revenge, so he was going to spill the beans about everything Billy had done. Tipsy and shaking, Andy explained a couple of weeks ago, Billy had told a union sailor he'd found a new job for him. It was a good gig and the pay was great. The young sailor was excited to accept the job and, per Billy's instructions, headed out to watch for an arriving boat. Billy's office window overlooked the dock where the sailor was waiting. From there, he opened the window and shot the sailor. Then he easily disposed of the body by pushing it into the water. According to Andy, Billy's motive was simple. When Billy told the sailor about the job, the man had entrusted Billy with his life savings of $200. That's about $6,000 today. With the sailor dead, Billy could pocket the large sum. Andy's story was alarming, but Dean couldn't exactly take his claims at face value. The man clearly bore a grudge over the death of his dog, so the chief of police would need to conduct his own investigation to see if there was anything to the murder allegations. He took a walk down to the dock where the sailor allegedly died. Dean appraised his surroundings. Then he looked back, over his shoulder at the union offices. Billy Ghoul was watching him. Not wanting to arouse any suspicion, the chief looked down at the dock and calmly ambled away, avoiding further eye contact. But by now, very little doubt remained in Dean's mind. The ghoul of Grace Harbor had been monitoring him that night. And if they were going to end his rampage, they'd have to move quickly. Coming up, Billy Goes Down. Now, back to the story. After two years of investigating, time was running out for police chief George Dean. His undercover detectives had collected drunken confessions from union agent Billy Gould, but Dean needed harder evidence that would hold up in court. And they'd have to act fast— Following a strange interaction at the harbor, the police chief suspected Billy knew he was being watched and might start covering up his misdeeds. He was right. 
Earlier, Dean had visited the farm where Billy had assaulted a 17-year-old girl and killed the family's cows. Somehow, word of the investigation got back to the union organizer, and Billy was furious. So one evening in the autumn of 1909, Billy accosted Patty, the undercover detective posing as a bar owner. Patty was the only person Billy had told that story to. And now, he wanted to know why his supposed friend was passing info along to the chief of police. But Patty pushed back. He reminded the union agent Billy had two friends with him that night. Maybe one of them told someone about it. Patty reminded Billy that they'd been friends for almost a year now. Why would he betray him? Billy's expression changed. He shook his head, clearly taking Patty's words to heart. But under his breath, he started cursing. In the next few weeks, Billy became more paranoid. One evening, Patty came to Dean with a frightening report. Billy now blamed his two friends from that night, Charles Hadberg and John Hoffman. Patty was sure if it came to it, Billy would kill both of them to keep his secrets safe. Sure enough, that Christmas, Hadberg and Hoffman both disappeared without a trace. By now, Patty was terrified of Billy. Nonetheless, he mustered the courage to ask about his missing friends. Billy's response was gruff. He said, Patty, you'll never see those two here again. The implication was clear. Billy had killed the men. Adding fuel to the fire, another of Billy's friends, John Klingenberg, also disappeared right around that time. Convinced Billy was ramping up his killing spree, Patty hurried to tell the chief. And when Dean heard the story, he knew he had to bring charges against Billy. But to do that, he needed physical evidence. A body. Throughout January 1910, Dean and his officers plumbed the harbor depths for any trace of the three missing men. The first few weeks turned up nothing. Then, mid-month, Dean learned Klingenberg was on a ship bound for Mexico. Investigators wired a message to the captain of the ship, demanding he subdue Klingenberg and get him back to Aberdeen for questioning. Almost immediately, Klingenberg became a nervous wreck. The captain offered to let Klingenberg out of his contract early, and even suggested they celebrate the occasion with a drink. Moments later, Klingenberg passed out. The captain had drugged him. By the time Klingenberg finally came to, the boat had already turned around and would be in Aberdeen soon. In the meantime, Dean continued his search for physical evidence that connected Billy to the other two men's disappearance. On February 1st, the county coroner, Paul Smits, and his brother, Otto Smits, took their boat out. They disguised themselves as fishermen to avoid arousing any suspicion because their route went right past Billy's office. Around noon, the siblings spotted something mired in the muck at the mouth of Indian Creek. It was just a few yards off a lakeside cabin belonging to one of the missing men, Charles Hadberg. And as they drew closer, they recognized it as Hadberg's body. He had two bullet wounds to the head and a 50-pound anchor strapped to his back. That was all the evidence Dean needed to arrest Billy for murder. 
Officially, Billy could only be tried for killing Charles Hadberg. It was the only case in which the cops had a body and clear evidence of foul play. And they hoped once John Klingenberg showed up, they'd have an eyewitness, too. But the press immediately connected the dots, announcing Billy was suspected in as many as 40 deaths. Billy, always the charmer, took interviews with all of the leading newspapers, vehemently denying the charges. He insisted Hadberg was like family to him. He couldn't fathom laying a hand against a man he loved so dearly. On February 6th, John Klingenberg finally docked in Aberdeen. After hours of brutal interrogation, the sailor confessed through racked sobs and broken English. A few days before Christmas 1909, Billy had approached Klingenberg and Hoffman with a plan to kill Hadberg. They didn't know how to respond to Billy's request, but they agreed to help their friend. So that night, the two men went with Billy toward Hadberg's place. But at some point on their journey, Billy turned the gun on Hoffman. He shot him four times. Then, Billy and Klingenberg dumped the body into the water. They continued down the coast until they reached Hadberg's shack. There, they spent the night with their intended victim. Hadberg even cooked them dinner before Billy fell asleep in his bed. In the morning, the three men set off in a boat. And once they'd been on the water for a while, Billy pointed his gun at Klingenberg and ordered the sailor to kill Hadberg. Klingenberg reluctantly obeyed and shot Hadberg. Then, he and Billy tied an anchor to the man and threw him overboard. Once they made it back to Aberdeen, Klingenberg boarded a ship bound for Mexico, hoping to put the nightmare behind him. Instead, Klingenberg now found himself questioned by a team of police officers in Aberdeen. Before Billy's trial even began, newspapers splashed the details of the interrogation across their front pages. In the court of public opinion, his fate was sealed. And the actual court was quick to reach the same conclusion. The jury returned their verdict just after midnight on May 11, 1910. Guilty. Billy collapsed into his chair when he learned he'd been sentenced to life in prison. He seemed to be the only person who was surprised by the ruling. Apparently, until this point, he believed he could talk his way out of any situation. Billy was in custody for 17 years until he finally died of complications from syphilis. But while the man was locked away, his legend ran free through Washington's many ports. Some estimated he killed more than 200 people, which would easily make him one of the most prolific murderers in American history. But in 2020, a historian at St. Martin's University in Washington returned to the original files. He didn't just review the newspaper coverage, but personal correspondence, union documents, and coroner's reports. And he reached one inescapable conclusion. Billy Gould was framed. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two on the Ghoul of Grays Harbor. For more information on the Ghoul, 
Amongst the many sources we used, we found Hollis Foltz's famous Northwest manhunts and murder mysteries, and Aaron Going's The Port of Missing Men extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Thomas Dolan Gabbett, edited by Amber Hurley and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. 